What do you call that noise? Hello, you're listening to What Do You Call That Noise, the XTC podcast. My name is Mark Fisher, and I'm delighted to bring to you a very special interview with XTC guitarist extraordinaire Dave Gregory today. Uh, but before we say more about that, I'd like to give a heartfelt vote of thanks to everyone who is supporting the XTC podcast on Patreon, where people have the option to become a pink thing, a humble daisy, or a knight in shining karma. And thank you very much to all of you for your generosity. Um, and thank you in particular to the following knights in shining karma whose support qualifies them for a shout out. Murray Meikle, Liam Duggan, Leslie Gooch, Amy Parkinson, Liz Lynch, Simon Slateholm, Robert Graham, Dennis LeCourier, Michael Sutcliffe, Nigel Waller, and Mark Reed. If you'd like to support the XTC podcast yourself, and why wouldn't you, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. And if you'd like to read my XTC books, have a look at xtclimelight.com. And actually, when you're there, you'll see that there is a book called What Do You Call That Noise? An XTC Discovery Book. And one of the things in that is a big interview with Dave Gregory. And what we're going to do today is to share some of that interview with Dave Gregory, which uh, took place on the 14th of March, 2018. I was there, but the main person asking the questions was Hugh Nankavell. And Hugh is with me now. And we're just looking back a couple of years, Hugh, to, to those that day. Uh, it was quite an extraordinary day, wasn't it? We didn't really know what to expect. But what, what did we find when we found Dave in Swindon? Yeah. Um, hello. It was, a, it was a really wonderful day. I think the main thing I remember, Mark, is that we got there, I don't know, about two o'clock in the afternoon and thinking we might be there for an hour or so. And we left after eight o'clock having not stopped talking for six hours. I mean, mostly listening, but um, a very extraordinary time. And Dave was so generous with his time. It was a very, very lovely time. And we ate quite a bit of cake and uh, drank a lot of tea. That's right. And I, I, it, was, it, would, it would be tempting to do a six-hour podcast, but I think um, there's only a limited amount of... Uh, airtime and patience and time people have. So you do have to, to, to read the, the book to find out the rest of the interview. But we've got the first 50 minutes or so of the interview here, uh, which I find still fascinating. And uh, I know, Hugh, you've just listened back to it. And what, what sort of reflection of, of, of on Dave, uh, his character, do, do, do you have now you look back on that? Yeah, it was really, really lovely two years later to go back and listen to it, you know, and obviously, you've edited our interview for the chapter in the book. But it was really lovely just to kind of hear some of those stories uh, about very specific things and general things um and what i was really struck by was how um how generous dave was um with but not just with time but with um his appreciation of his colleagues and his memories of his time in XTC. But also he's, um, you know, he's very prepared to be critical when it's required. And I, I think that comes across really, really nicely. It gives a really great flavour of his experiences um, with Andy and Colin in particular. Yeah, and I should say that I didn't choose Hugh at random to to, to come and interview Dave with, uh, with, with me. Hugh, you are a, a professional musician, and so you had, as well as being an XTC fan, and, and so you, you had a particular 
interest both in i would say both in the the, the technicality of music but also the, the the practicality of music in the sense of 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 who who creates who gets credit for creating um and 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 the whole artistic process is, is of something that interests you and i think uh, certainly seem to interest uh, dave in response yeah i've um you know i've played in bands and done you know traditional contemporary and uh, classical music training um and uh, i've i've worked a lot i call myself a social musician really i, I work mainly with people making creating music and and i've done quite a lot of research into uh, group composition and you know so when you're working with a group of kids how they put music together and so for me i was really interested in talking to dave as to you know what his role as a musician in xtc was when he's not the main well he's not the songwriter at all so what how how does how is he collaborating in you know the kind of elements of of the song the end result of the song um yeah and so um and, and we started our conversation by me relating about a, a, a lad that i'd recently met um who was four years old and he um he was a really interesting boy that you know you, if you gave him a ukulele he took all the strings off and put them inside or if you gave him a xylophone he would take all the bars off and see if he could fit them inside or if you gave him a drum he'd go and get the stethoscope in order to listen to it and um and he in kind of early years reception he he was fine but when he got to year when he was age five in kind of mainstream school he was really struggling because people just thought he was being naughty whereas i think he was being interested and experimental and i just told this story to dave because it reminded me of stories i'd read about dave taking instruments apart um and that's kind of how we how we kicked off our interview that's a very good question that is a very insightful question and one that hadn't even occurred to me <laughs> but now you come to mention it that probably does uh, because i do like to immerse myself in whatever it is i'm doing or involved with if it's something i'm passionate about i have to be totally immersed in it in, like you say, in order to understand what its function is, what its purpose is, where it's going, if it's a song, um, um, what, what the intention is. The thing about going back to guitars, though, I have to say, yeah. usually with, if it's vintage guitars, they have to be dismantled to clean them. Right. Most okay. of the ones that I buy secondhand are in such dreadful shape. They just have to be restored. If it's a new guitar and it's, it's set up properly and everything, I usually just leave it alone and smell it from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> I do like the, I do like the smell thing. But, uh, and what about yeah, the, the, mel oh, sorry, the Mellotron? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was a, a curious piece of electromechanical hardware. But, but when you first got it, did you did you want to look inside? Yes. Yeah. And did. You did, yeah. Because there were problems with it. I think the motor, it needs a new motor. But right. it's always needed a new motor. I used to have to set it up and let it run for an hour. Before. Actually, have you got one? Uh, it's upstairs, right. but I haven't yeah. used it for, uh, not in anger, for a long, long time. Right. I mean, it's just up there because that's the only place that, mm -hmm. you know, I can, I can keep it. It sits under the mixing desk. Um, most of the heads have, uh, are kind of wearing out now. It needs a thorough overhaul. Mm. But I did sample every, every one of the tapes and, and keys into this uh, emulator mm -hmm. about 20 years ago. And um, I used to, you know, it was fine. It worked, it worked great and it stayed in tune, you know. Because yeah. like, the problem with the Mellotron was that the bigger the chord, 
if you had a five-fingered yeah. cord, that would just uh, it would drag the, the the flywheel would slow down as yeah. you pressed all <laughs> these things down onto the, onto the spindle, and the pitch and would, would drop. And the pitch would drop. Yeah. Single notes and two-note chords, it was just fine. Then see a two-note chord on a mellotron—that's a big sound. Yeah, yeah, you don't really need quite often just two keys. It's just uh, just just enough magic there. But like, yeah. but it was—I couldn't believe that. Uh, it must have cost, you know, the, the R&D costs and, and transport costs of these things. How did they ever make, make it a business? It would have been laughed out of Dragon's Den, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, you've got 36 repro heads. 36 of the bloody things. They all have to be individually soldered and wired to the amplifier. And then, you know, the contact made with this series of uh, wooden keys with a rubber roller on, that pressed the tape, actually physically pressed the tape on top of it, yeah. on the repro head as this flywheel is going around, dragging the tape across, yeah. only to be retrieved by a giant spring after eight seconds. <laughs> I just, well, if that's what it takes, yeah, yeah. because it's a wonderful sound, it's a really emotional sound. It certainly is, yeah. yeah. Um, but on again, it's a good job I never really uh, had a Hammond organ because yeah. again, I would have to dismantle it. And find out how I still don't know how the sound is made. No, it's a, I just yeah. don't know how that big old sound, where it comes from. And was that so? Was that interest in how sounds made? You know, like the guitar thing. Was it from a very early age for you? Ah, yeah, I think probably it was. I just remember asking my dad when I was very small. I'd heard, I heard, uh, it might have been something like Edmundo Ross or somebody on the radio, and there was an electric guitar or a guy playing guitar, and I didn't know what it was. It was, an, it was some kind of jazzy, clummy sound. I asked my dad what it What's that sound, Dad? What, what's that? what instrument is that? And he sort of scowled. <laughs> and so, Sounds like an electric guitar. <laughs> electric guitar. Those two words. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought, wow. What's electric? Is it, is it dangerous? <laughs> what could it possibly be? There was always a curiosity about where sounds came from. Mm. One of the scariest sounds I can remember hearing uh, that I couldn't figure out and it always used to freak me out when it came on the radio, but I loved it. Uh, Johnny Remember Me by John Layton, the Joe Meek production, with the girl's voice uh, singing this little, Johnny Remember Me, in this echo chamber. That's something else I asked me dad about. Right. Sounds like an echo chamber. Right. <laughs> echo chamber. <laughs> yes. Wow, I wish I could. Where can you get one? Yeah. That's really spooky. Yeah, have you got one upstairs, Dave? I haven't. I mean, no. Actually, funnily enough... <laughs> Inside a little tiny it's box. It's probably in a tiny yeah. box with a bunch of springs on it. Yeah. But, yeah, I just... I just uh, music was just part of... Uh, I, I can't, couldn't imagine life without it. It was always there. Unfortunately, my parents loved music. There was always music in the house. I had my dad hammering away at the piano. Yeah. Or, you know, he had a collection of... 78s, she likes 78s, all classical, and um, 
little bit of opera and so, 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 so with the Oklahoma soundtrack on, uh, on on a bunch of 78s. I think there were three 78s. I right. loved those songs. I thought it was the first real melodic... I think that probably really hooked me into melody, the importance of melody. Every single song on that collection is a gem, you know? Mm. It's, and um, it's just like sort of all tonic... We didn't have, uh, it was the 1950s, there really wasn't very much to listen to mm. on the radio. You know, it's still very, very stuffy post-war um, organisation that didn't like pop music. Not that there was very much of it, you know, rock and roll was still in its early stages. Skiffle was a joke. I don't think I really would have embraced Skiffle, but I know that if I'd heard Little Richard and Chuck Berry at the age of seven or eight, that would have turned my head a lot sooner than yeah, the London again. eventually did. Because mm. up to that point, I was listening mainly to classical music. Right. And then my mum and dad sent me off for piano lessons. When I was about eight or nine. Right. Which I enjoyed to a point. And then, you know, as I sort of got into my uh, about 10 or 11 years old, I suppose I started being aware of pop music and more electric guitars. And and then eventually, you know, the Beatles came and that was it. The ball was over the wall. Yeah. <laughs> but presumably, so they're... I'm, I'm exactly the same as you. I My first piano lesson was the day before I was eight. I remember it so clearly because uh-huh. it had such an impact on me. But therefore, for you, music and the manuscripts were kind of interlinked from that age. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I learned to read music... Virtually, so I was learning to read, yeah. read and write. Uh, I didn't really, uh, I found it very, I still find it laborious, yeah. writing writing out charts, which is why I don't, I, I tend to shy away from it now if people ask me to do a, a string arrangement. I'll say, oh, do you a string arrangement? It's going to cost money. Yeah. And that usually scares them off <laughs> because it's laborious. Yeah. But very, very useful now because... After XTC, well, you know, after we'd done a couple of guitar, bass and drums album, we, we all felt that we needed to progress. And I started to get back into playing the piano because the studios we were working in all had state-of-the-art, you know, wonderful grand pianos, mm. way, way better than anything I ever played. Mm. So to sit at the, uh, the keyboard and just play some simple chords and hear this big, rich sound... That reignited my interest in keyboards. Mm. So I would think, um, you know, we need to, I think around a time of English settlement, or maybe even by, by the time we'd finished Black Sea, I was thinking, you know, it's time we thought more about more keyboards. We had a little synthesizer that we used to carry on the road, mm. just, just little sound effects and things. But I wanted to do more work more with the piano mm. and English settlement those sessions we went to the manor we had a lot more time to muck about so we had things like blame the weather and oh, yeah. uh, there's not a lot of piano on the album itself but there was a couple of things enough to sort of broaden our palette a little bit plus once I'd got the idea of sitting behind the, the piano then it was a question of right, I've got to remember what I've learnt here I'm going to have to write it out mm. so I'd start scratching out charts so that I wouldn't forget what I what 
I would, what I decided to play. And what did um, when you would do that? Would Andy or Colin say anything? Would they did it? Oh, they just sort of took it on board and said, uh, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's great, Greg's." You know, well, if or Colin usually it was usually Colin, he was more he was more amenable to uh, my input because his demos weren't as finished as Andy's. Yeah, yeah. He Andy would uh, come up even in the days before he had his studio. He had a little Porter studio, four track set. Yeah, you know what it is. Yeah, and that would be uh, he'd pretty much have the whole thing. Scratched out. Although we did, in the days when we still rehearsed as a band, lots of stuff got changed, and mm. uh, I was able to contribute a lot more. But I think, but because Colin's songs weren't as fully developed, gave me a lot more scope to uh, mm. to muck about. And I'm, I'm interested that you've mentioned "Blame the Weather" because now you say it, I'm remembering back to hearing that for the first time and thinking, "Oh, this doesn't sound very like XTC," because mm-hmm. it had a very, a, a, in a good, creative way, just, it just sounded like this was a whole new palette that was sure. almost like a novelty single because it sounded so that it was coming from somewhere else, yes. and like a sort of musical, uh, the, the sort of rhythms of it. Did it? Did it? Did that feel like an experiment at that point? It, yeah, it was, and uh, it was also a test of my ability. Uh, did I have sufficient skills at the keyboard to um, to cut a record? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, for, and haven't really factored in the fact the the fact that you can drop in and out in a studio. You know, <laughs> the engineer knows where the in and out points yeah. are. It's um, it's a, it's makes life a lot easier. You don't have to learn an entire piece and perform it perfectly from start to finish. Um, Did you play all the piano on? English settlement. Yes. But there isn't very much on English settlement. On Mama, that's when we really, because yeah. we went back to the Mama, went back to the same studio. Mama has a lot more uh, keyboards generally and piano. Oh, but I had a particular question. So that little tiny bit in the middle of Runaways. Oh, yes. That's you, is it? That's not me, actually. No, that's Colin. Excellent. <laughs> that's Colin. I think that's the only time he played piano. It's definitely a one finger bit, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Right. Now, the one, uh, I think my biggest keyboard contribution on English Settlement was the marim- the, the, the pretend marimba on its nearly Africa. Oh, yeah. You had this profit synthesizer. Mm. And uh, there was this, you know, Andy just had this little high-life scrubby guitar. He was just singing this, this song with this odd devil's interval in the melody. And so I thought, well, it's, it's, got, it's nearly Africa. Let's get a sound that's nearly Africa. <laughs> and so I was sat there and just worked out this this jolly little melody. Yeah. Using this um, kind of, yes, the prophet, the prophet marimba. I think that was, I'm just trying to think what else is on there. Because a lot of it is... Uh, 12-string Rickenbacker. That was the yeah. other big change. Yeah. When I bought that guitar, that's uh, it's a big part of the sound of that record. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I think it's on uh, pretty much three-quarters, maybe a little bit more of, of, of the whole album. That was a, one of those new toys that you couldn't you couldn't get you couldn't stop playing with. Just such a lovely sound, and I'd been looking for one for a long time. Uh, before we did Black Sea, in fact, and I think well, on the first American tour that I did, I went shopping for a, 
from Rickenbacker, but was distracted by something else. Gibson Firebird, I think it was. <laughs> so that was all my spending money gone. To, so the, the Rickenbacker had to wait for a, another year. <laughs> yes. And it's interesting to know how uh, what Black Sea might have sounded like with 12-string. But, uh, yeah. yeah. It's very much a rock record, though, I it think, is, yeah. uh, Black Sea, so it's probably just as well that I held off. But um, yeah, so back to your back to the question about you taking something apart. So, and because because you read and write music in the way that Colin and and presumably Terry don't or didn't, right? Um, so when you when you heard a new song by either of them, do you think your mental processes were quite different from theirs in the sense? Were you, were you analysing it in terms of chord relationships and melodies? Yeah, because. Uh... They actually were fortunate in that they weren't schooled musicians. Yeah. They didn't have a set of rules. They just went on instinct. Yeah, yeah. And I think from a creative point of view, that's very liberating. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas I would always think, I don't know about that chord chat. That's not going to work, is it? How can we make that work? There weren't very many instances like that, but occasionally there'd be things I think, oh, no, that, that harmony's wrong there. I don't, don't really like that. But, of course, that's part of the essence of XTC for a yeah, lot of yeah. people, the yeah. dissonance. Yeah, yeah. It took me a while to accept it because I do... I did feel that, rightly or wrongly, part of my role was to straighten things out a little bit. I like the spikiness of Andy's uh, approach and his sort of... this, this kind of... Uh, deliberately he was he was deliberately off off the off the straight and narrow he would make a point of being eccentric and and uh what's the what's the work I best I don't know it would just be I think this you know I'd always be thinking this this is a great song if only I could just straighten it out a little bit smooth those some of those hard edges off just right. just just, just a little bit, just round some of those nasty spikes, um, and which basically I, I think I probably did. It's an interesting, I think it's an interesting language straight out of it, isn't it? And I, I, I know what you mean about the kind of unschooledness of Andy's melodies or whatever. But do, you, um, can you think of examples where you? There are there are quite a few in books, of uh, all kind of books or articles about FTC. Where about the kind of the few arguments that you were just sort of saying, where you would try to straighten something out, and yeah. Andy wouldn't, didn't want it. Right. Can you think of some way you where you did? Are there any? Is that a kind of? Is that a useful question? Or is it? A... I think mm, we didn't actually come to uh, come to blows, or we, there was never any serious falling out about our how we arranged the songs mm. we all f- sort of fell in with each other so this is something that's overlooked the guys who wrote the songs would always get the credit in parenthesis under the song title on yeah. the so everyone who's sort of oh this is a good song who wrote this oh it's an Andy song it's a Collins song whatever and they've overlooked the fact that in order to in order to get that song on the record the way it is requires performance from more than just one person, more yeah. than just the singer or the guy who wrote the song. The idea, yeah, that's great. 
But the record, that's the band. And yeah. the performances of the individuals is often overlooked. I always felt that um, in some cases perhaps my, uh, my contribution was never really... Uh, and it sounds like I'm blowing my own trumpet, but you know, I, I did feel sometimes that there were performances that that became that that defined how the song sounded in its finished state. Absolutely, I completely and, agree with you. And I can't yeah. really, uh, um, without wishing to say, because I, you know, I don't take any credit away from anyone, because without the initial spark of creativity, it would, there'd be nothing. Mm. But at the same time, to get it in a finished state. Was uh, not just uh, me, but the drummer, the producer, and engineer. They yeah. have to hear what's going on and, yeah, yeah. and and blend it like a chef would, you know, with sauces and what have you. Yeah. To make the finished product palatable. So uh, I can't really think of anything where. Um, let me just think. Well, for example, yacht dance on English settlement. Yeah. I decided to play this um, the little uh, the little nylon strung guitar part that yeah. I wrote from scratch. I didn't have a classical guitar or a nylon string guitar. I think we had to go into Oxford and rent this thing for a couple of days. Right. Because I practiced at home and we'd rehearsed it. That was it. Was it became, you know, that's we knew what was going to happen. It was going on the record. We just needed to record it properly. Hugh Padgham got it straight away. We got it down in just a couple of passes. It was very quick. So you could take the guitar back straight away. I think pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it stood because I'm trying to imagine. I can't remember the guitar, which guitar it was. For a while, I thought it belonged. It might have been one of Colin's guitars because, as I say, I never, I never had a nylon string. Mm. Um, but it must have gone back to the shop very quickly. But I think that that guitar almost defines the song. Uh, mm. it's, it's as big a part of the song. The, the little riff that, that comes at the beginning. The it just... Yeah. I often felt, well, you could have offered me a co-write on that. But no, there was not a bloody that ever happening. So, I mean, that's... For me, that's the that's the really crucial question about this whole conversation in a way, Dave, because there are other moments where... It's like when you've done string arrangements on Thousand Umbrellas or... And Rook, you did as well? Well, actually, Rook, to be fair, that's that was Andy's... Yeah. Uh, I just scored out what he demoed. Okay. So I did. Yeah. I can't really take credit for that. But it's... certainly Wrapped in Grey yes. did most of the work on that. Dear God, yeah. which, uh, you know, they didn't... That was never credited on... Because, of course, it wasn't on the original. That's right. In the sky yeah. Um, but, yeah, you're right. But I think everyone knows now that Thousand Umbrellas, those are, those are my string. And I've actually got a lot of work... Uh, as a result of doing that. And they sometimes pay you? They sometimes <laughs> yeah. do, yes. Yeah. I've had a couple of well-paid gigs doing that. But then yeah. again, you see, <clears throat> I I think maybe people might feel a bit short-changed because they haven't actually given me a song. In most cases, I haven't had a song as good as a thousand number of songs <laughs> with yeah, which yeah. to work. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there was, there's a couple of exceptions. The Pugwash did a song called uh, Rose in a Garden of Weeds for about this Irish band Pugwash, who are big XTC fans, or Thomas Walsh's. And uh, I was very, very happy with that. We did that at Abbey Road. Right. And um, I think that was one of my favourite string sessions. 
as I say, he's a great songwriter. He's a really good songwriter. Yeah. And it was a joy to work on that. And, and like I say, God bless him, he paid me. Yeah. Um, but yes, going back to what we were saying earlier, I think the it's it's a shame that it's, it's always sort of the singer-songwriter gets all the attention. Mm. And, uh, and I'm thinking back, for example, David Bowie. Mm. Great artist, brilliant. It just uh, the way he sort of developed from the the, the shy fellow that I remember from the sixties who wasn't very good, let's yeah. be honest. And he just sort of blossomed into this amazing artist. But then again, you see, with the help he had, there was a guitar player called Carlos Alomar. who was yeah. just brilliant. I just thought, well, why doesn't this guy get any credit at all? <laughs> mm. His his name's on all the records. He worked with Bowie for years. Yeah. But nobody really has ever said fantastic job he did. That's just one example. Richard Tandy at the Electric Light Orchestra. Right. He must have done most of the arranging, I would think, for Jeff Lynne right. during his time. But, you know, my girlfriend, she's a big ELO fan. Yeah. And I said to her, do you know who Richard Tandy is? Richard Tandy. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Go on. <laughs> yeah. Like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I've just... One of one of the books that I've been re-looking at is Brian Eno's Diary of a Year. I don't know if you ever oh, saw that. Oh. In about '96, he wrote a diary. Did he? It's called Diary with Swollen Appendices. It's a fantastic book, just because <laughs> it, the, the appendices are, go, are kind of massive, just little, little essays. Oh, I see. But one of the things he talks about is that role of you know when you're when he's a producer or is he a co-composer? Right. So you know in. Um, we're talking heads was a good example, wasn't it? You know, yes. Because he quite quite often he he became the the fifth composer in those in remaining light. I think he's kind of credited as you know it's kind of it's credited to the four members of the band plus him yes. as writing the songs. But then he also said that actually the role of a producer will involve composition at times. Will involve social melding of people. Will involve being an engineer will involve a whole range of different things. And actually, if he's being commissioned to be a com- producer, and it's and in advance it's very clear that's what his role is, he won't then ask for a composing credit. Right. Because for him, he kind of learned that experience. That's what it kind of became yes. part of. Yes. And he just says, the important thing is the conversation in advance. And that's a little essay in here, which oh. he talks about, which I think is a really interesting one, isn't it? In your case, Andy and Colin write the songs, and for most of your career, there was only you as the extra person, yes, wasn't there? That's right. So, and then when you then compose an extraordinary guitar solo to come in the middle of, you know, Super Supergirl, for instance, you know that, that which is another one which I've just been reading about, is really interesting. And you think, well, it's, surely that is as much the sound world of that piece as the lyrics and the harmonies and the melodies. And it's interesting that you chose that song because all the keyboard work was done by Todd Rundgren. Right. That whole arrangement is Todd's. Yeah. I don't, I'm not even sure if Andy played on it. Certainly sang it. Yeah. But, uh, well, thank you for the compliment. I always liked that little solo. Yeah. Well, it was written specifically for that song. Well, that's, I mean, Andy's very, he's very upfront about saying that, you know, you went and screwed yourself away in your lodge cabin yes. working yes. it out right. over quite a long time because you didn't you have a special guitar that you were playing it on well the thing was that he had uh, 
Todd Rundgren had Eric Clapton's old Gibson SG, the right, psychedelic painted one, The Fool, mm. which Todd used to refer to as Sunny. He called it Sunny because it was the guitar Clapton played on Sunshine of Your Love. Right. Uh, and it had been an iconic thing for me when I'd just started playing guitar. Uh, and I'd see Eric Clapton with his perm and his caftan and this psychedelic guitar just pouring out these just these liquid honey, beautiful mm. solos on this thing. And it just turned... It was such an inspirational instrument. Mm. So when I walked into the Todd's studio, and there it was, sitting on a stand, neglected, you know, just yeah. out, sitting on a stand <laughs> in the control room. <laughs> Old strings or...? Old, uh, and actually, it had acoustic guitar bronze-wound strings on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Um, but so you went to Woodstock to the guitar shop, so, did you? <laughs> I thought... I got to so I ex- again I examined it yeah, yeah. I took it back to my um, I said to Todd uh, do you mind if I change the strings before I play this solo and he, and he said to me why do you want to do that <laughs> just to play it <laughs> <laughs> so he reluctantly allowed me to change this but of course while I, once I had the strings off yeah <laughs> <laughs> A lot of stuff been changed on it over the years, you know, and it was damaged. Uh, there was a big split in the body because they're quite thin, those SGs, they're only about an inch and a quarter thin. And there's a common fault in all of them um, over time where if you hammer the jack socket, the jack plug in with any force, it's, it'll split, cause a split where, where the uh, cavity is at the back for the controls. And that had happened, and it was sort of like you could have just slapped it off if you were determined enough. Right. So I had to treat it with extreme care. Yeah. But I took some photographs, and uh, I just sort of smelt it. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, I can't believe the stories it could tell. Yeah. Um, and I thought, well, if I, I this is going to be, this is just a little sort of, it's just a 40-second solo. Yeah. I'm going to make the most of every note. And so uh, that was that was really it. That's the joy. I, that's one of the highlights of that entire trip. Mm. Which I gather was actually, quite fraught at times. Sorry? Which I gather was quite fraught. It was for Andy yeah. and it was for Todd, definitely. Yeah. But uh, for me, it was just an, the best adventure I could I couldn't imagine. Anything. Yeah. Because I, I was such a huge fan of Todd Runder. Mm. Again... Listening to him, listening to Stevie Wonder, listening to Donald Fagan, the way they mm. arranged chords, the way the shapes yeah, yeah. of, you know, those wonderful major ninths and those flatted sevens. Yeah. And, and all of those keyboard chords, I just, it, it, they, the way they, uh, just this, this ear for glorious, uplifting uh-huh. harmony. Yeah. I just, uh, that that saw me through the, the miserable 80s because I mm. thought the 80s was a disgrace in pop music. It was just utterly disgraceful. I've been watching the Top of the Pops uh, reruns from 1984, yeah. 85, all through the 80s, and it's like, for God's sake, did the Beatles never happen? <laughs> what is going on? What do you look like? You know, I did, I, I did meet you once before, Dave, on the... In Top of the Pop studio, really, on um, um, since he's working overtime. Well, I never because I I had a band in Birmingham at the time. I was eighteen, and we'd taken our demo down to Riverside. Do you remember the BBC Two show Riverside? I do. Yes. 
And for some reason, we'd, we'd taken a cassette, as you would have done, and we then just found ourselves wandering around the building. And we opened this door, and they were rehearsing for the Top of the Pops that night. And because everybody else in there went off for their dinner after their... I think if you were a punter, I think you've got, like, the rehearsal, and then you got some food, and then you came back in oh, for the yes. recording. Yeah, yeah. And they all kind of went out, and you stayed in there, and so did we. And I remember having... I remember Andy played a little bit of um, anthropology. Oh, that's right, on yes. <laughs> and I remember chatting to Colin about playing elect- about a play- fretless bass yes. and the fact that he wasn't into jazz. And in my head, fretless bass was a jazz right. instrument, certainly at that stage, and... Um, but anyway, that's my only previous well, encounter. Well, I'm sorry, I don't remember. No, I don't no, recall no, no. It, but and Andy broke a guitar string, didn't he? He did. While playing. Yes. And of course, he just carried on, yeah. yeah. But they actually sh- went out, didn't it, with a broken guitar yeah, string, and then did. it suddenly repaired itself. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but just back briefly to Super Super Little, because you, as you were saying, you know, that Todd, he is the producer, and therefore he was being paid and presumably gets royalties. Yes. As a producer. Whereas you, again, you know, what you just said was you wrote that solo. And it's, mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting when you said about, you know, that you wrote the uh, the nylon thing in Yacht Dance. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, that you're writing that and yet the song is written by Andy, isn't it? Yes. And He's credited as the writer. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, I know that bands have fallen out because of stuff like yeah, this. Yeah, and yeah. And split up. I didn't want to... Uh, I didn't feel it was really fair on the writers to be muscling in on their work. That's how I saw it, you know. It was there. Without their, the songs, there'd be nothing. Yeah. And I didn't want to create any... Uh, I mean, to me, they were, they were providing me with the most ideal scenario with, 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 in which to work as a guitarist yeah. or as, even as a keyboard player. What a luxury to be able to work, have these songs to work on because they were really original... There was no, um, we didn't have a big hit to have to follow up, you know. There was never any of that, oh, you've got to make it sound more like since it's working over time or whatever it might be. Yeah. There was nothing that was significantly massive enough mm. to define what XTC, what the XTC sound was. We were free mm. to be as imaginative as, as we could be. Well, I mean, I'd say that's very generous of you in, in the best spirit of the world, in the sense that, you know, you're doing it because you want to make music and you're enjoying making that music. I mean, you're right about bands splitting up. You know, the Smiths are still at war with each other, aren't they, over the, the role that the yeah. bass and drums played in yeah, that band. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and then U2 is the famous one, isn't it, where they divide all their royalties five ways, don't they? The four band and the manager yes. for everything, yes. which kind of makes one yeah. little complete sense. Yeah. But on the other hand, people say, but he's the manager. And then Bono says, well, yeah, but we wouldn't exist if it wasn't for what he is. This is done. the difference. And, uh, yeah. He's a good manager. Yeah. We never had it. Mm. Well, we had one good manager. We had one guy who actually deserved the job description manager. Mm-hmm. That was Tarquin Gotch. Yeah. And he wasn't with us very long, but in the short time he was with us, he got us out of this horrible shithole of a lawsuit that we were going through. Yeah. Sorted that out. Uh, and uh, which, which I think, you know, that whole business could have finished us, not just as a band, but as individuals, we could have all been put into bankruptcy. Mm. Um, he, he got us out, he got us, uh, he, you know, he, he greased palms in the nicest possible way. He did, he had great connections, both here and in the United States. He was well liked by people. He could get the records 
onto playlists. Mm. He knew how to do that legitimately. And, and he was just a good motivator and a nice, uh, basically a nice guy. The problem with Tarquin was he's, his main job was as music coordinator for John Hughes, the, the film director. Yeah. And, he, and Hughes had allowed him to have this sort of side project where he managed the Line Act Time and a couple of other bands. And he was, that was kind of like a... Hughes just assumed it was going to be a hobby. And then, so, but Tarquin was convinced that he could convince Andy to, to put the band back on the road and tour. Uh, he just needed to uh, be wooed. Yeah. <laughs> and Tarquin thought that he could do that. And he very nearly did succeed. He yeah. did at least get Andy over to the States to do the Letterman show, which yeah. he, you know, he didn't want to do. In fact, if it was one of Andy's songs, I think he would have refused to have gone right. because it was Colin's song. Oh, fucking hell, yeah, I'm going, going, yeah. What, Letterman? <laughs> Bloody hell, yeah. And I said, yeah, I'm happy to do that as well. Yeah. <laughs> so we we kind of said, look, they've got the studio band, all we've got to do is show up and uh, play our parts and sing. Couldn't be easier, could it? No stage fright there. <laughs> and I think that probably helped, helped sell Oranges and Lemons because it did very well. Yeah. It did really well. And, and basically bailed us out of this awful financial misery that we were mired in. Mm. Um, it, it really... Uh... What I think is really interesting is that you, so you, when you described Yacht Dance, I thought it was really interesting because, of course, I, we don't know who made that tune up. Mm. And yet that is, as you say, that's what I think of when I think of Yacht Dance. Mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. little melody at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose my question really is... What role, what leeway did you have on the song? So, for instance, did you ever have, did you ever suggest to either Colin or Andy changing a lyric? No. And would... Should have done. <laughs> <laughs> and do you think, would, would either of them have responded to you doing that? Yes, they would. <laughs> Actually, I didn't have a problem generally with Andy's... Andy was a good, uh, he was very intelligent yeah. lyric yeah. writer. Yeah. I, I, I was quite astounded at some of the things that he was mm. in, that he... That he I think he's a brilliant poet. Yeah. But then again, sometimes you'll you, you kind of get a little bit. What's the word? Yeah, I don't know. That's just something. Hmm. I remember he wrote the account this song called "Obscene Procession," and uh, it had a good melody. Is that on Fuzzy Warbles? I think it might. Yeah, be. I think. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's it's out there. So yes, yeah. I think it must be physical. But it had this awful, really, really. It just just the picture it painted was just unpalatable to me. I thought, well, why would you want to sing this awful? <laughs> why would you want to paint this picture? Yeah. <laughs> One of the things as a fan of XTC, I'd always wondered is why didn't Andy and Colin ever write together? And you think about Lennon McCartney, you know that most or a good chunk of their writing was completely separate, but they always credited to each other. Yeah. And one of the things that their credits was that they would share them with each other first. And even if one of them only changed one word, it was usually a very good one. Mm-hmm. Or supporting someone when they were feeling, I'm not quite sure why I've done that. Yeah. And it always felt to me that that would have been quite an interesting thing, but they clearly never did. Um so and so it kind of it made me think, well, you know, because it's kind of clear that all three of you had different roles in arranging the material, mm-hmm. whether it's by Colin or Andy. But it's like so if you if you 
didn't feel that you could have said anything about their words. Could you have, could you have about the harmonies? Could you have about the chords? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, could you have about the melodies? And that, that's when you, you were saying about kind of smoothing things off all, all the time, you know. <clears throat> and then could you about the extra instruments that you might have brought in? Right. So for me, that's, that's kind of the interesting thing that I would... Yeah, no, but this is what used to happen. You see, when we rehearsed as a band, yeah. this would occur quite naturally. Yeah. Because I would uh, listen to these melodies. They would be, we'd be sitting around in a room similar to, well, yeah. similar to this, and we'd be playing with each other, and uh, there might be a chord movement. It might be, say, um, suddenly you might hear a, a G major 7, or an implication of, say, a G major 7 yeah. chord. And then I would probably say, well, and then I would just sit and listen to it and play a G major 9. Yeah. So that would give it a slightly more jazzy feel. And as long as no one said, what are you doing there? Yeah. I don't like that. Yeah. It just stayed in. Yeah. And I can't remember really every instance where that, but that was basically what would happen. We'd play together until it all sounded comfortable to mm. all of us. Very rarely did anyone say, I don't like what you're doing. Mm. Can you change that? It did happen once or twice. I can't recall any individual instance offhand. Mm. Um, yeah, we used to have this this sort of uh, shorthand, and it would be, uh, "Are you happy with your part?" <laughs> and then you'd have to think, "Oh my God, what are we doing now?" Yeah, didn't happen very often, but something just occasion. But of course, <clears throat> as time went on. And Andy's demos became more and more fleshed out and yeah, finished. Yeah. The opportunities that for events like that, you know, were just diminished. Yeah. For me, it was less and less for me to do as time went by. And um, although Colin, his his demos, he never went. You know, he never really had a home studio or any anything more than just some basic recording gear at home. Yeah. And his de demos were just voice and acoustic guitar most of the time. Actually, you know, he did. Occasionally he'd have a drum machine and a bass. But he, he he wouldn't spend too much time. He wouldn't go into the same detail that Andy did. Was that, would you say that's because that's his nature? His nature is more gregarious mm -hmm. in the sense that I've got this song. I What I want to do is take it to the band because mm -hmm. I know that they will add interesting things to it. Or is it laziness because... You know, because the opposite is well. Actually, I've got this idea, and I've got, and I, and I need to kind of work out how it goes. Well, you have to remember, he's the bass player. Yeah. So that was his. He was a great bass player, yeah, yeah. really, really good bass player, and that's what he did best. He could strum an acoustic guitar. He could sing, but he wasn't a keyboard player. He wasn't mm. a guitarist. Yeah. Uh, and he's well, without wishing to wishing to be too patronising, he, he knew his place. Yeah. And so yeah. he was happy to uh, say, well, here's the latest thing I've written, and it goes like this. Yeah. And off we go in the same same way, just sit around and, and play along with it until we all had um, to add our parts down. I remember he did, uh, there was a song called uh, Sacrificial Bonfire, yeah. which had a distinct... Um, Diddle-diddle-ding, bom-bom, diddle-diddle-ding. Yeah. He wrote all of that. Right. I, I ended up playing it on the record, but he wrote it, so yeah. he... He did have sufficient uh, knowledge of the guitar to be able to write specific parts. It took a while, you know, it, it sort of came eventually. And also the odd voicings of the song Dying, those two acoustic guitars 
playing a slightly dissonant harmony, if, you, if that's not a contradiction in terms. No, it's not. <laughs> um, he figured that out with an yeah. odd tuning. Mm. And so he did get more adventurous as time went by. But in terms of getting it on the record, once again, it comes down to the performances. You know, we, we actually, he was quite happy for me to, uh, to play the part. Mm. And... Uh, and he was more, as I say, more willing to share than Andy was. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, on the uh, on the Apple Venus sessions, his songs sound a little separated from the general feeling of that album. Well, I wasn't there for all of it. Uh, I did a lot of the basics. But Andy did very little to the songs that Connie had written, to the extent that uh, I think on Fruit Nut and um, certainly Frivolous Tonight, I think I played everything apart from the bass and the drums and, and the singing. I think all the, all the instrumental parts are mine, thinking back. Andy uh, was so wrapped up in his own yeah. stuff that he and is, really... So is that... And are, are all those parts... Your, you determined them in the sense that you wrote them. Yeah, the, certainly the piano. I remember yeah. uh, the piano on Frivolous Tonight was... Um, Colin had written it on acoustic guitar. Yeah. And, and I said, well, I think this could sound... This has got a sort of folky, almost like a... It's sort of like a pub song. Yeah. Why don't we try it with this... With a sort of jangle box piano, like mm. an old upright or something. Nothing too posh. Mm. And I just ran it through on, I think it probably, I think on my upright piano that I had in my old house in Stania Street. And and he liked the feel of it and said, yeah, let's do it like, like that. So mm. it just stemmed from there. You know, we started, with, that's the first thing to, to be recorded with the drums was the... Yeah. Banana fingers, what we used to call banana fingers piano. Gloom, 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 boom, boom, Brian Wilson. And... Uh, became the flavour of the song and then yeah. just decorated it with uh, whatever we thought. Yeah, that's interesting language again, isn't it? That's the flavour of the song. You're absolutely right. Like the dance, the flavour is that acoustic guitar, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Mm. But yeah, so, you're, so you definitely felt that your role with, with the group was that you could affect, uh, affect at times considerably and at other times much less the flavour of what, of that. Mm. Yes. Yeah. In fact, I probably did more because if you think about it, Andy Partridge, his his guitar sound didn't change from white music right through pretty much to the non-such period. You know, it's always this spiky, scratchy mm. sort of, doesn't have a lot of tone or body to it. Though he did become very, very good at playing acoustic guitar. And he's a, just a brilliant rhythm player. Yeah, he yeah. just has this amazing sense of rhythm. Really, mm. really very, very tight and absolutely in the pocket. Mm. <clears throat> And as time went on, uh, he began to appreciate more and more the power of perfect tuning so that, uh, you know, if, 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 if a guitar or any instrument is only slightly out of tune, the impact would be lessened by, you know, um, monumentally in some cases. Uh, there's nothing more exciting or pleasing to the ear than a, a perfect, perfectly tuned instrument playing a loud chord mm. and and I think you know you realise it's just all part of the learning process I suppose 
you listen to Drums and Wires, the original mix of Drums and Wires, the guitars are all over the show, tuning-wise. Mm. Mm. That's a certain charm, but when you hear, when, you, when it gets... Yeah, so anyway, to get, I'm getting away from yeah. the original question. Andy's, Andy didn't sort of, he didn't have this love of guitars that I have. So he he still has maybe the same three or four instruments. I think he's added a couple more since I since Yeah, and he talks about using his daughter's first guitar, doesn't he? That's on, right. On a he few did, things, yes. like he wrote uh, Church of Women, I think. He wrote Church of Women. He wrote yeah. the entire Big Express album, I think, on yes, he tuned the guitar to a chord right. and wrote the whole album on this little guitar. It wasn't used on the on the record, yeah. but uh as time went by, you know, I started to gather more and more instruments. Yeah. So I would bring them into the studio because I couldn't wait to get them on record. So, you know, it's particularly some of the more uh, expensive and rare vintage guitars. I remember, you know, still get, getting my first proper Gibson Les Paul when we were recording Skylarking. It was, of course, right at the end of the sessions. There wasn't much more guitar to play. And I think I ended up... I did use it on Dear God and I used it on... Extrovert, I think it was the only two songs it got used on. Both of the tracks that weren't on the album. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, eventually, you know, from after Skylarking, certainly during the Duke to Stratosphere period, we were, mm. it was like, bring all your toys in, lads, yes. we're going to have some fun there. Yeah. Uh, again, that, that wouldn't have happened without uh, without all my, all this, this, you know, plethora of instruments and effects pedals and god knows what else that i that, were, that i had at my disposal yeah but, uh, you know again saying saying that andy has uh, a guitar style he's a he's a great guitarist yeah, yeah and he just works with the instruments he's always he's always had from you know yeah. from, when, from the band before the band was signed in some yeah. cases no but what you're describing there is really it's, it's really nicely articulated which is that you know that he comes up with the songs but essentially, it's a bit like a piano is a piano, isn't it? I mean, you can play the inside of a piano, but that's essentially a piano. If you're writing songs on a piano, you bring to the band on the piano and then you find the way of making the, that sound world. So he's saying that he's kind of coming with his, you know, angular melodies, extraordinarily metaphorical lyrics, but the sound world is quite blunt, if you like, or, yeah. quite, or it's kind of simple, and then what you yes. do is you flesh it out with yeah. the group. Yeah, yeah. Occasionally he'd take a... So I'm thinking now of um, Burning with the Optimism's Flames, where there was a little break in the middle that became a guitar solo. It was yeah. just sort of like... Um, just just this uh, this funny... <laughs> this odd rhythm sort of clomp, clomping along. And he just dropped in this gorgeous, jazzy, jazz-flavoured little... It's like a sort of... High life meets jazz. Mm. Uh, picked guitar thing, and you can almost hear his brain working as he's going through it. I don't think he had anything written. Yeah. I think it was just, can you play some guitar? Just connect this chorus to the next verse, Andy. And um, and that became, you know, again, that was that was a big flavour of that particular song. I know it's one of Andy's favourite songs, mm. and he, I think, a lot of it has to do with this. Uh, the guitars, how the guitars work together. So, yeah, so for me that's interesting also because, you know, in the, back to Super Supergirl, you know, the, 
you you went away, wrote the solo, brought it back in. And I know you weren't playing that stuff live, but presumably if you had been touring that live, mm. you would have played that solo as written live, yeah. wouldn't you? Because yes. you kind of composed it and, yes. and you kind of worked on it. Did Andy do almost the opposite? So like with Burning with Optimism Flame, he did he improvise that in the studio? It was improvised in the studio, but it became such an integral part of yeah. the song that when we played it live, I would play. Ah, excellent. <laughs> okay, so yeah, that's interesting. So because you and because you're good at learning, well, material, no, it's because he's, his his part yeah. was basically a ba ba yeah. ba ba. Without that, yeah. that's that's the basic part. That sits yeah. with the drums and that's the rhythm track. Yeah, so yeah. obviously, if he uh, player, took a yeah, solo, yeah. that would that would vanish. Yeah. yeah. So it was to, given to me to play live. Okay. But then again, I looking at some some notes that I did when we were compiling the Black Sea liner notes. Yeah. I went back to my diaries and uh, I noticed that he used my amplifier to play the solo in the studio. Right. Uh, it must have just been set up, yeah. and he just plugged his guitar into it, and because <laughs> that's how it used to be quite yeah, often. Yeah. It, it would be the line of least resistance with Andy and guitars. He yeah. didn't really, he didn't spend a fraction of the time on his guitar playing yeah. what he did on his vocals. Mm. And so it would just be, um, oh, well, let's just see what it sounds like. And you just look for the nearest amp and just plug it. Is this, is this mic on? Let's go then. And off we went. And so that probably was done on the spur of the moment with the mm. closest thing to hand. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, no, he's very, um, very instinctive method that he has to, to the creation. To the creative thing is, to, it's like once he's switched on, it's difficult. You know, just, just take advantage of the fact that he's in create create mode and record everything. Because <laughs> there's going to be some mm. magic moments in there. Mm. Um, and it was the same on stage when. Uh, you take a guitar solo. I remember that one of the things I was watching, it's on YouTube, it's been up for a long time, a, a little thing we did in Paris for when we were promoting Drums and Wires. And we were doing, as uh, an encore, I think we played This Is Pop. And again, there's a little guitar break between the end of the first chorus and the second verse. And it's different every time. Every yeah. time we played it, it was slightly different. And I'm listening to this... Uh, and uh, it's yeah, and, and I, I'd forgotten all about it, and suddenly he plays this little piece of genius that I doubt he could play again. Yeah. He couldn't learn to play it. Yeah. It just happened to be he happened to be in that particular mood at that particular moment, and that was the result. All good things come to an end, but if you'd like to catch up with the rest of the interview, you can find it in What Do You Call That Noise, an XTC discovery book, which is available at xtclimelight.com. Thank you very much to Dave Gregory for his generosity and Hugh Nankavell for his great questions. And thank you for listening. Uh, remember to subscribe to What Do You Call That Noise, the XTC podcast on your favourite podcast app. See you next time. What do you call that noise?